More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only inner circle club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one or two year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, as I watched the terrible fire in Paris that was destroying the Cathedral of Notre Dame, my thoughts went back to the many times I had visited it, starting as a young child when my dad was stationed in Germany. The scale and majesty of Notre Dame is almost overpowering. Notre Dame is one of the greatest examples of Gothic architecture. When you stand inside, you feel lifted to the heavens by the very shape of the building. As a historian, I wanted to devote a special episode to Notre Dame's story, architecture, and its importance to the whole world. This is not the first time the cathedral known as Our Lady was nearly destroyed. Throughout its 800-year history, 
Notre Dame lived through the ransacking of the French Revolution, wars of religion, and two world wars. One of my favorite authors is Ken Follett, who in addition to his spy novels, writes epic historic fiction. The Pillars of the Earth is his classic novel and television miniseries based on extensive research he did based on the building cathedrals like Notre Dame. Ken is an outstanding author and historian. I'm pleased to welcome him as my guest to talk about Notre Dame and its historic significance and the profound impact the fire has had on all of us. What were your feelings as you saw Notre Dame and, and saw what happened over the last week? Well, it was absolutely devastating on Monday night. We were just finishing dinner and a friend who happened to be in Paris called and she said, I'm in Paris, turn on your TV. And we saw the church burning. And first of all, you sort of think of these cathedrals as permanent and they were built to last forever. We were living in London and Paris. You walk past these buildings every day and you look at them and you, we cherish them. But we kind of think they're always going to be there. And this fire was so bad that I was not at all sure that the cathedral could survive the fire. It was tremendously hot. The flames were so bright. And I just felt that we were probably going to lose it. And what a terrible loss it will be. This Notre Dame de Paris is at the center of Paris and it's at the center of France. And in fact, the what we would call milestones, although they're, of course, kilometer stones in France, anywhere you see a sign saying Paris, 150 kilometers, that means that that point is 150 kilometers from Notre Dame Cathedral because that's considered the center of Paris. And so all measurements all over France, the measurement of the distance from here to Paris is actually the measurement of the distance to Notre Dame Cathedral. And that's just a kind of symbol of the way that Notre Dame is the center of the city. And French people feel that way about it. And they, like everybody else, they would kind of assume, as we would assume, that Westminster Abbey will just always be there. And when you see the place in severe danger of complete destruction. It's a shock. It's a terrific shock because you are being surprised. You're being absolutely astounded. I thought, you know, I, when I finally went to bed on Monday night, I thought I was going to wake up in the morning and discover that there was absolutely no cathedral there. That's what a lot of people thought. According to the French papers, they actually managed to put out the fire in the bell towers with about 30 minutes to spare. If it had taken them half an hour longer, they probably would have lost those bell towers and that would have meant they would have lost the entire church. So it was a very close thing. And so it was shock and we looked on the TV, we looked at those Parisians standing in the street. There they were, thousands and thousands of Parisians were standing in the street looking across the river at the cathedral, and they were weeping. People were just openly weeping as they watched the flames devour this cathedral. It was tragic. It was like somebody had died. Terrifically emotional, first of all for French people, but also for people all over the world who think of this church as somehow representing France. It was a tremendously emotional, devastatingly emotional moment, Newt. 
Well, I was really struck because Clist and I had been there many times, and when I was looking at, at the background, something like 13 million people a year have been visiting Notre Dame, and they want to see it so badly that the average person actually waits in line for about two hours to get in. So you can sense that there was this real hunger for people from all over the world as they would come to Paris to come and see this extraordinary place. I was very encouraged when uh, President Macron said they would rebuild it and do it quickly and do it as it was. What was your sense of that when they when they announced that it was not going to, in fact, be abandoned but would be rebuilt? Uh, I actually saw Macron live on TV and he said, nous rebâtirons, we will rebuild, nous rebâtirons. And first of all, that was very heartening. And they've pretty quickly started talking about what will be necessary. There's going to be an issue about materials because it turns out that those timbers in the roof, which actually burned and actually caused the fire, those roof timbers were very, very long. And there are no longer any trees in France high enough to provide roof beams of that length. And they're, they're not sure whether there are any even in the world, and they're not sure what they're going to do about it. So there are going to be a lot of issues. But President Macron, bless his heart, he came right out and said, we're going to do it in five years. And there's a reason for that, because in 2024, Paris has the Olympic Games. And they want the cathedral finished in time. One of the newspapers in Paris said the headline was President Macron believes in miracles. And it may well be, I mean, it will be like a miracle. If they can rebuild it in five years, that will be like a miracle. It's a very, very ambitious timetable. But, you know, God bless the French. When they put their mind to something, they can be very determined about it. So, listen, let's cross our fingers and wish them luck. Well, I think for that kind of a timetable, they'll have people working around the clock. And in some places, I mean, I'd be very curious whether they can find substitutes for the large oak trees that are nonetheless acceptable in taking care of the roofing in a way that still looks exactly like Notre Dame has looked for the last 900 years. It will be a remarkable achievement if they can do it. I, I agree with you. And But you can also imagine, if they can do it, that every visitor to the Olympics is going to want to go by and see Notre Dame as part of that experience. And it'll become part of, again, defining Paris. The other thing I was really struck with is that these great cathedrals, in a sense, live through history. I mean, in the case of Notre Dame, they had the French Revolution. They had priests who were executed. They had nuns who were executed. The anti-clerical fanaticism of the French revolutionaries. You know, you could imagine at one point that the cathedral itself might have been in danger. And yet time goes on. It's recaptured in a sense by the church, continues to be a center of religion even today. France, which is far more secular than it would have been back when they were building this, strikes me that, that these are great frameworks within which history occurs. And I wonder if you had some of that sense, both in your writing as you were creating this, and of course you then wrote two more volumes about the town, the people in it, and what happened over several centuries. But did you also have that sense that the 
once the cathedral gets started, that it becomes a a vessel within which history occurs? Yes, that's absolutely right. And in a way, Kingsbridge in my novels has come to represent England. So what happens in Kingsbridge is uh, very representative of what's happening in England at that period of history. And of course, if you, when you have a building of that size, a building so imposing in a city, then it naturally becomes a focus. So Notre Dame de Paris is where royal people would get married. You know, kings and queens would get married at Notre Dame. Napoleon was crowned emperor at Notre Dame. Napoleon was nothing if not a showman, and he knew that if he was going to be emperor of France, he would have to have that kind of stage on which to become emperor. And the building lends itself to that. Of course, the French revolutionaries hated it because they felt that the monarchy that had been oppressing the French people had been kind of hand in glove with the church. And it's, they weren't wrong. The way that the senior priests of the church in France behaved over centuries was nothing to be proud of. They lived the life of Riley, you know, very wealthy and so on. And of course, as we know, as always happens, there were also many very dedicated men and women in the Catholic Church in France who did wonderful good works, but the revolutionaries had some reason to be anti-clerical. And they did, as you mentioned a moment ago, the revolutionaries talked about destroying Notre Dame. They didn't do that in the end. They used it as a corn store for years. When Hitler left Paris after the Allied landings, 1944, as the Allies were approaching Paris, Hitler left and his parting words were burn it. He wanted Notre Dame flattened before the Nazis left. And interestingly, the man he left in charge of Paris refused to do it. And so Notre Dame was yet again saved. It's it's several times, isn't it? Notre Dame has been saved. And on Monday night, it was saved from destruction by, I think, the bravery of the firemen. And they saved the cathedral and some of the holy relics, the crown of thorns, which is probably the most precious relic to Catholics, most precious relic in all of France to Catholics, is that crown of thorns. And that was saved by the firemen risking their lives and going in and picking up these precious objects and taking them out. So again and again throughout history, the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris has been just about saved from destruction. Well, and let me remind uh, our listeners that if you want to get a real feel for this, how you end up with a place as magnificent, you should really look at the work that Ken has done because it gives you a real feeling for how they went about the process of building this kind of cathedral. You're such a unique person. You really persevered at becoming a novelist and learning the trade and starting out as a reporter. What led you to just keep writing? I mean, how did you, what is there inside you that leads you to do this? Well, I've always lived in my imagination a great deal. And when I was a little boy, I was always pretending to be something else. I was always pretending to be a cowboy or a pirate or the captain of a spaceship. 
and at the same time as a little boy, I loved stories. I loved people reading to me, and I learned to read myself at quite a young age. Imagination and stories have always been pretty much a deep part of of my soul. And it was, I guess, when I graduated college, I became a newspaper reporter, but I realized that I didn't love newspapers, but I did love books, particularly novels. And so I continued to write. I kept having these ideas. I thought I would think this is a great idea for a novel, and I would write another novel. And most of those early novels got published, but they weren't very successful. They were not big bestsellers. But I suppose what happened was I just loved the story so much that there was really nothing else I would rather do. The range that you write about, I, I followed you for many, many years. And I'm always amazed if, I mean, for example, when I think about some of the things that you've done, Night Over Water, which is a wonderfully imaginative book, and just sort of comes out of the blue. It's not derivative of anything else you've ever written. I find you carrying us with you with your imagination. And where your imagination takes you, boom, there's a book. That's true. And publishers don't always like that because after you've had one success, they <laughs> really want you to do the same thing again and again, once a year for the next 30 years. After Eye of the Needle, which was my first success, they really wanted me to just keep on writing World War II spy stories. And I guess I just kept thinking of these other ideas that I thought would make good novels. And so when something occurs to me, you mentioned Night Over Water. I was at the Marine Terminal at LaGuardia Airport one day getting a plane. And at that time, I was hunting around for my next book. And I saw the exhibition. I don't know whether they still have it there at the Marine Terminal, but I saw this exhibition about the plane that was known as the Pan Am Clipper, the flying boat that flew before the Second World War. And that was what it's... I saw those pictures of the inside of this great plane, which only went at about 90 miles an hour. It was one of the slowest aeroplanes ever. And the idea that you would get up from your seat in the plane and go to a dining room and then you would, at night, your seat would be turned into a bed and you would put on your pajamas and get into bed and you're still flying across the Atlantic. That just seemed to me such a romantic and seductive idea that I just wanted to tell a story about it. And that's how it always is with me. Given that and given your background writing about World War II, what draws you to the Middle Ages and the intricacies of building a cathedral? I mean, it's what a remarkable break in how you focus your attention. And the amount of research you did to bring that to life was just astonishing. Well, I once again, it was looking at cathedrals and going into them and looking at the architecture and the patterns and so on. It made me think, why is this here? You know, here's this enormous building, very beautiful. It's been here for 800 years. And how did it get here? The people of the Middle Ages, we know, were, by comparison with us, very poor. They slept on the floor. Their houses were made of wood and straw. And yet they made these wonderful stone buildings. What drove them? These buildings cost a lot. They were difficult to build. And, you know, medieval people, we take it for granted we could go to the hardware store and buy a perfectly balanced hammer with a steel head. They didn't have tools that good in the Middle Ages. So I began to think about that notion 
of these medieval people coming out of their wooden huts in the morning and going to work and building the most beautiful buildings in the world out of carved stone. Once again, my publishers were a little uneasy about this project, and they said, look, we've had great success with stories about the Second World War and about the KGB and the spies and all this, and so, Ken, now you want to write a book about building a church in the Middle Ages. Are you sure? But I felt convinced that this actually could be a story that people would remember longer than they ever remember a thriller, no matter how good a thriller is. It's a short book. You read it in a few days or a week, and quite often you forget the details quite soon afterwards. And I thought if I wrote this book, it might be the model I had in mind was Gone with the Wind, a historical novel that's very emotional and moving and that people will remember long after they've read it. And my publishers, let's give them credit. My publishers said, well, OK, Ken, we, we're not sure, but if that's what you want to do. And so I went ahead and did it. And, and indeed, it, my instinct turned out to be right. When you were doing the research, how long did it take you jumping centuries and jumping topics and going to what is in many ways a, a very specialized... I remember a very good friend of mine, Joe Gaylord, was, was reading your book when it first came out, and he walked up to me and said, I can't imagine all the details that he's mastered to get me to understand how you build a stone building. You were totally inside Joe's head, and he was just hanging on every page. Well, I felt that to make this story real... It would have to be clear to readers just how the medieval people managed this mammoth task. And so I did go into in great detail in the research. I went into exactly how they did it, how they planned it, how they carved the stone and how they mixed the mortar and the shapes of those arches and so on and how they managed. Oh, yeah, you're right. I went into it, into it in great detail. And that was because... I wanted people to say, now I see, now I understand, as well as enjoying the story, which is, has a lot of romance and, and a certain amount of action and, and there's jealousy and political rivalry and all that kind of thing. But I wanted people to say, now I understand something that I didn't understand before. I think people like that in a book, Newt. I think, you know, you can get great drama and great entertainment in all kinds of ways nowadays. There are great television dramas and great movies and plays in the theatre. From a book, people want something a little more. As well as enjoying the book, they want to feel that they gain something from it. At the end of the book, they're a little wiser or a little more knowledgeable about something. And that's why I went into such depth. You've got to be careful about that kind of stuff, of course, because it's important not to put information in the book just because it's stuff that you found out in your research. You've got to put in the information that readers will find fascinating. You can't show off, you know. You can't say, uh, I'm putting all this information in just to prove that I did the research. You have to put in stuff that they will say, oh, wow, that's how it's done. And I do have to say, as an aside, by the way, that uh, not only have you been successful as a writer, but that you've had a whole series of your books turned into a television series. And as I understand it, you actually were a merchant in the Pillars of the Earth when it was done as a uh, miniseries. So uh, you have been a man of diverse talent. 
<laughs> well, you know, I was on screen in the Pillars of the Earth for about 15 seconds. And, you know, <laughs> afterwards I waited for that Oscar phone to ring and it just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the day job. So let's go back now to Pillars of the Earth. When you were doing the research and you were imagining these people and their lives and their time, what would you say was the biggest surprise to you compared to what you thought going into it? Well, let me mention two things. One was how they measured things. Now, of course, today you measure things. You want to measure things, you go to the store and you buy a ruler or a tape measure. And if you're a scientist, you use a screw gauge micrometer. But they didn't have any of those things in the Middle Ages. And in fact, they didn't have standard measures. Turns out that although they would have used terms like a yard and a foot, they would be different in every town. And each building site would have a rod of iron that told you that was a yard and it would be the yard would be different from one place to another but that didn't matter so long as in this building everybody knows that this is a yard and everybody is using the same measure for a yard and that's how we actually get the english expression a yardstick when you wanted to make sure that something was a yard you'd go and you'd check it with that iron rod that and that was a yard the other thing that was interesting was discovered by a historian who actually eventually became a good friend of mine, a, man called, a Frenchman called Jean Gampel, and he did something clever. He looked at the payroll records of building kept by the monastery when they were building a big church, and he just went through and counted how many female names there were, and it turned out that the figure was 17%. And, of course, we had always imagined, because we do, that these things were done by men. And it turns out that quite a lot of women worked on building our great cathedrals. In fact, in that particular case, it was 17% of the workers, and it was probably about that on all the cathedrals of Europe. And that was, first of all, that was a surprise, because, like most men, I had kind of assumed that all the important stuff was done by men. And it was also, it made it much more interesting for me because I could have women characters working on the cathedrals. So I'm curious, they're dedicating literally their lives to what is a multi-generational project. How do you think they felt towards the building they were building? What do you think was their sense of connectivity and, and their sense of imagination, if you will, towards this thing that was coming up out of the ground? Well, I think... It would have been a mixture of things, Newt, because, of course, it was a job and it enabled them to feed their families. You need work. You need to get paid because you need to put bread on the table. So it would have been that. But, of course, they realized that they were doing something. They were involved in a task that was different from anything else that happened in the Middle Ages. This was the only way you could be involved in something in the Middle Ages, which was meant to last pretty much forever. I was recently on the roof of a cathedral here in England called Peterborough Cathedral. And right at the top of the cathedral, they have what are called crotchets, which are, which are little decorative pieces of stone. I say little, about a yard high. And some of these crotchets had been replaced in the 1950s. And when you go up on the roof, you can see that the ones made in the 1950s are much more crude 
than the, the original crotchets. The decorative parts of the medieval crotchets are very intricate. And they, where they had been replaced, they had been replaced by much cruder and much simpler objects, which looked the same from the ground. So obviously the workmen of the 1950s thought it didn't much matter. But the medieval workmen thought that the crotchets on the roof mattered as much as every other detail of the cathedral because God could see it. And I think that tells you a little about the mentality of the people who worked on the cathedrals. Yes, they were putting bread on the table, but they also understood that they were doing something much more profound and significant than just building something. They were doing something that would, in fact, last not only longer than their own lifetimes, but longer than many, many lifetimes. Thank you for taking this time to be with us today. I think you bring to any discussion of Notre Dame or any great cathedral a unique knowledge and a unique ability to bring it to life. And I'm just very grateful, given everything you're doing, that you would take the time to talk with us, Ken. It's been a pleasure, and you thank you very much. When we return, I'll highlight some of the more significant historical milestones in Notre Dame's 800-year history. I think back to when I was a kid, and my mom and I went to Paris. My dad was stationed at the time in Stuttgart, and I had a chance to just go and wander around to see this great cathedral, to see the various stalls along the Seine River where people sold books and stamps, and uh, where it was all just magic. In a sense, I think we collectively were watching magic burn. We were sitting, all of us around the world, looking at this scene, this moment of horror, as this great, extraordinary building had flames reaching above it as the firefighters worked desperately to save it. And I think you have to reach inside yourself and say, why did that affect me so much? Part of it, I think, is that it's a touch with eternity. It's a sense of if a building this great can burn like this, then what is my life like, or what is your life like, or, or what's America's history like? Because this is one of those great historic monuments that's been around virtually, you know, for all practical purposes. For folks like us, it's been around forever, much longer than the United States has existed. But at the same time, it is a symbol. This church has seen so many things in its history and is so much a part of our lives that I think that it really becomes a moment to stop, and if you would, to take stock, to think about the civilization you belong to, to look at this extraordinary witness to history. First of all, that starts back when people believed so deeply, were so committed to Christianity, that spending a couple hundred years building a cathedral seemed to be a reasonable thing to do. Dedicating your life as a stonemason, or as an architect, or just as a workman, seemed a reasonable thing to do. And people poured themselves into these great institutions. And in France, I think it's fair to say that Notre Dame de Paris or Our Lady of Paris really became the center of that kind of sentiment, partially because 
Paris was the center economically. It was the center educationally. It was the center politically. It was a other than an occasional Viking raid, almost nobody actually got to Paris. Even the English in the Hundred Years' War found Paris to be so big and such a formidable fortress that they tended to fight to the west of it. They tended to fight to the south of it. But Paris remained sort of the center of French uh, politics, French government, French economics. And at the center of Paris was Notre Dame. And so I think in that sense, Notre Dame came to symbolize so many different things. And if you look at its history, it's kind of fascinating. In a way, this is a great tribute to endurance. It was the center of an unquestioned Christianity. And everybody expected to be Christian. They understood the importance of it. And then in the 18th century, beginning with the Enlightenment, there was an enormous uprising against Christianity in a sense of moving to a very different world, to such a different world that the French Revolution adopted its own calendar and rejected the entire idea of accepting what had been the Christian calendar. But as you know from my talking about Julius Caesar, it had also been in many ways a Roman calendar. That period didn't last very long. But during that period, they basically ended the religious nature of Notre Dame. And it was just a great building in the middle of the city. And you could look at it and you could say, but this has no great meaning. And yet, for most French who are not part of the revolution, it is said that when they finally, once Napoleon took over and Napoleon thought, okay, the French Revolution was kind of fun, but that's not who I am. That's not what unifies France. And so he was much more tolerant of the church in order to consolidate his own imperial role. And as a result, he said, look, if you want to ring the bells once again, which the French Revolution had forbidden, he was happy with it. And it said that people cried, uh, wept with joy the first time that the bells were rung because it meant that once again, the center of their religion in France was alive and was vibrant. You also have this sense of majesty. If you've ever been there and you've heard the, the extraordinary organ, many years ago, somebody said to me, organs were actually designed for stone buildings. That when you hear an organ in a wooden church, you're not hearing the full power of a great organ. And that's why when you would go to Notre Dame, if you had the opportunity to actually hear the organ, and they always had world-class organists there. And we were very fortunate that our good friend Peter Latona, the music director at the Basilica, actually studied for a year in Paris. He's an organist by profession. And uh, he will tell you that it is one of the most mystical and miraculous periods of his life because of just the extraordinary the skill of the organists at Notre Dame, the power of the organ itself. And I think in that sense, again, all of this was designed originally to communicate the majesty of God. It's really hard to imagine nowadays, but so you, you have to join me for a minute in sort of closing your eyes and putting yourself in a different world. Imagine that you are a peasant in the Middle Ages and you are living in a hut. Frankly, in much of that time, you're living in a hut along with your farm animals during the winter, and they keep you warm and you keep them alive, but you don't have much of a life. You don't have television. You don't have cable. You don't have music on a regular basis. You don't have any of the things which broaden our lives and make us just sort of accept everything as normal. And so you come in from the countryside, and suddenly... 
you're at this huge, gigantic cathedral, and you're awestruck, and it carries your eyes upward, and you go look up all the way to the steeple. Then you walk into the cathedral, and you have in the Gothic cathedrals this enormous open space. Now, again, imagine yourself a peasant. You've never been in a building this big. You've never seen this kind of majesty, this kind of glorious structure. And because the church knew that you couldn't read, it put great emphasis on paintings, on frescoes, on, on tapestries, on windows, so that you are surrounded all of a sudden by all of this wonderful light and these wonderful colors. And it captured you. And you thought, this must be a step towards what God would be like. And that was the whole point of these cathedrals. They weren't just big buildings. They weren't tourist attractions. They were testimonials to the glory of God and of the opportunity of salvation. And so when you would see on, on a feast day at, at Easter, and I thought it was a hugely poignant moment to have Notre Dame burning during Holy Week and to realize that we are now, you know, at Easter and a time of rebirth, a time of rededication. And it's so totally appropriate that President Macron caught the rhythm and the spirit of that and was dedicated immediately that night. No question, no thought. This is a, a building whose foundation stone was laid by Pope Alexander III in 1163. Now think about that. That building has been there for almost a thousand years. So people have this instinct that says, this is worth preserving. And it's worth preserving as a connection to the larger world, as an ability to see something bigger than yourself, and to see something which is noble and which carries all sorts of meanings, whether you're religious or you're not religious, there's something somehow that gets you to reach beyond yourself. And I would suggest to you, if you've never been, when it is rebuilt, make it a point to go and to go quietly. Clist and I have discovered over the years, if we'll go in there and relax, sit down in a pew for a few minutes, allow the building to absorb you, look up and look around and get a feel for it. I mean, most people walk in, take two pictures, walk back out and say, okay, I've, I've done Notre Dame. That's not the way to experience it. And you'll see as they start rebuilding it, that this is a very complex, it's almost like a living organism. It's an ecosystem of worship in which there are many different small places where people can be doing a variety of things and where you can go and you can see different countries represented, different parts of Christianity represented. You can have a wedding off to one side. You can have mass in another place. You can have people practicing song in a third place. All of this going on simultaneously in this gigantic building. I think it's also important to recognize that Paris was very fortunate in that in World War II, it was essentially an open city. The Allies refused to bomb it, and the Germans, while Hitler wanted to destroy it, in the end was not destroyed, partially because his senior general in charge of the city refused to do it, and partially because the French resistance rose and, and made it too expensive to try to destroy it. And so the result was large parts of Paris remain as they were. The other cities in Europe that were heavily bombed were rebuilt in much more modern structures, much more modern layouts. 
But as you walk around the island and as you walk around the downtown part of the older part of Paris, you really are in a medieval city. You really have these little side streets and all sorts of places to go explore. That's the world of Notre Dame. And one of the things I would suggest when they rebuild it, if you've never been before, go approach it, get a map, go down a couple little side streets so that you're surrounded by a road that is barely wide enough for a car. You have shops right on the street. You see all of the life around you. And then you suddenly walk out and you see right across the river this great building. And in a way, the claustrophobia of these small streets increases the awareness of the majesty of the building you're about to see. When we come back, we'll look at all that needs to go into rebuilding this great cathedral and what we can all do to help. I think it's very important to recognize that this is more than just a building. This is a cultural center, a religious center, a historic center. And I think that's why so many of us bonded together that night, watching it burn, hoping it could be saved, impressed by the courage of the French firefighters, the dedication they showed. The commitment was such that firemen went in with priests, saved most of the key relics, of which the most important, the crown of thorns, which was believed to have originally come from Jerusalem when Constantine's mother was touring uh, Jerusalem and gathering up relics, and was believed to be the original crown of thorns that Christ wore on the day that he was crucified. But they have a whole range of things that were saved. And in fact, I saw one reference that maybe as much as 80% of the art was saved from the fire. So almost a miracle in and of itself. When you walk in there and you stop and you let the building own you and you let yourself feel the building and feel the stones and feel the space, I think at that point you'll understand why this was so important to rebuild, why it was so extraordinary. And I hope that a lot of people will decide right now that uh, they're going to make plans when Notre Dame reopens. They're going to go back and visit Paris. They're going to be part of seeing and feeling and experiencing the refusal to give in. After all, the history of Western civilization has been uh, not a peaceful, easy history. It's been a history of wars, of plagues, of problems, and of somehow surmounting them. As uh, Faulkner said in his great Nobel Prize speech, that mankind will endure and prevail. And I think that spirit is what you see, and that spirit was what President Macron represented when he said that they would rebuild it. And I'm personally delighted that they're going to be committed to rebuilding it. And I think you'll get a sense for the magic of building Notre Dame and the magic of building all these great Gothic cathedrals, which are so remarkable. President Macron has set the right tone and the right standard. Let's rebuild it. Let's rebuild it quickly. They clearly need all the help they can get. This is going to turn out, if they try to do it in five years, to be a very expensive project. And we have on our Newt's World page a site you can go to to donate 
and I encourage you, if you have any interest in doing so, trust me, they're going to need more money than they have. They've already raised about 800 million euros, but they're going to need much more than that to complete this project because cathedrals are very expensive. And if you want to complete it so it looks like the original cathedral, that's even more expensive. But it's worth it because five or ten years from now, you and I will be able to go stand there and realize that this great monument to Western civilization is once again full and complete and worth visiting. Thank you to my guest, Ken Follett. We have an extensive look at Notre Dame, including links to Ken Follett's books and information on how you can donate to help rebuild Notre Dame on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, I'll be co-hosting Newt's World next week with Pete Early, my co-author on my new novel, Collusion. We'll be exploring the intriguing and secretive world of Russian poisoning. We'll look at the deep Russian history of using poison as a weapon, along with some recent cases. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.